Please turn with me to Isaiah, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 37. This portion of scripture is often called Isaiah's prayer, the prayer of Isaiah. I just want to get before how many of you here have heard the prayer of Isaiah when he took the paper, the the letter, and put it upon the temple and prayed to his God. Okay, So we're going to look at this prayer. This is going to be our focus for today. So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 37. And we're going to look at verses 14 to 20. We're also going to look at the context because understanding the context is always king. Once you understand what the real peril is today, you're going to see what Hezekiah did, King Hezekiah did. And we're going to see what we need to do when we go through a similar trial. Just this week, we had an incredible answer to prayer. And we were just so encouraged. It's almost as if the Lord said, we're gonna, I'm going to answer a prayer so that when you get up here and preach, it's going to be powerful. Just yesterday, we also heard of a very sad news. And this is where the Christian understands whatever happens, we bow down, we praise our Lord, we bow down, we get on our knees and we pray and we pray and we pray. We don't get angry, we don't rip our clothes, we don't scream at God, and we, we don't give up. And this is another topic of today. We're not, we, we are called, God's word calls us to never give up. So I want to slow us down for a second. I want us to remove all the distractions, and I want us to hear Hezekiah's prayer. Isaiah 37, verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord Yahweh. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to you, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands. Wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. These are the very words of God Almighty. And today I want us to look at the priority of prayer. What do we do when we receive an unexpected trial? As Pastor John said last week, you're either in a trial or getting out of a trial. So the, the adjective or the qualifier of an unexpected trial doesn't really stick. This would be the second part of my sermon. If you remember last time, we looked at Romans chapter 5, how to resist despair. If you remember, we looked at trials produce perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint because our hope 
is in Christ. That is Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. And I'll just read it so that we have another framework to look at. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You see, trials are part of the Christian life. Trials are necessary for our Christian walk. Let's not be surprised when something happens. And trials constitute divine work. Why? For our ultimate sanctification. So the question that we asked last time, how will you remain resolved? How will you resist despair and bitterness? How will you rest in Christ's love? And the answer is clear. We pray, we pray, we pray. <clears throat> However, it's always good to have a reminder. And I think that's what the home, that's what's on my heart today, just as a reminder. We fight the good fight, and we fight the good fight on our knees. Every single mission has setbacks. The question is, what do you do when that setback reaches you? That is why today we're going to look at the priority of prayer. My heart's desire is for everyone here to be established in their prayer life, prayer life, and if not established, to start and to maintain a prayer life that is rock solid. Well, you see, we have allowed ourselves to be constantly disrupted. There's always something. There's always a ringer. There's always a text message. There's always a letter. There's always something. The speed of life is just so fast, and technology has just brought everything. Our minds are not calm. They're always racing. And that is why our attention span is just a few seconds. And that's why our prayers have become just a three-second prayer. And that's why we need to reestablish the priority of prayer. I've taught many times on prayer in the past. I've heard many great sermons. It's always good to have a reminder. My purpose here, I'm not going to guilt anyone into praying. But I want you to see the power when you put prayer as a priority. Because if you're not praying, it's your pride that is preventing you from praying. What is our roadmap for today? We're going to look at five points of biblical prayer. We're going to read the context of Hezekiah's prayer, and then we're going to look at three elements that should be part and parcel of every single prayer. It's a very simple roadmap. We have a lot, but if you stick with me, I promise you the answer to Hezekiah's, the King Hezekiah's prayer, and the way that God orchestrated and manifested everything to bring them to the brink of utter and complete despair. For Hezekiah to have failed once, regrouped, got on his knees and prays, and then the manner in which Yahweh, God Almighty, answers Hezekiah's prayer can only be an encouragement to us. So we're going to dig really deep today. We're going to sharpen our understanding on how God requires us 
his people to pray. So let's start with a quick little overview. Let us give you a classical definition of what prayer is. It's an offering of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his daily mercies. This is, this is just a class. This is from the Westminster Shorter Confession. I highly recommend everyone to just take a look at it. You see, biblical prayer is communicating with God. It is an addressing and a petitioning of God by us. It is praying to the Father through the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is you speaking to your Abba Father. Prayer is part of actual, your actual daily personal Bible study. As you are reading God's word, God is communicating to you his word. And we have the privilege to pray back his word to him. That's why we are called to make prayer a priority. And there is no lack of rich verses calling us Christians to pray and to see prayer as an encouragement. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Here, Paul calls the believer to pray at all time in the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. This is our call to prayer for us today. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert. With all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf. Here you have Paul asking for prayer for himself. That, utter, that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. That's for the gospel. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Do you see Paul's heart here? This is the great apostle Paul, and he's asking others to pray for him for the furtherance of the gospel. Here we see Paul asking the church to pray for him. And Paul calls us to pray, to respond as prayer, to respond to his call, to pray at all times, to pursue prayer. And also I will add this, to persevere in prayer, not just to give up, but to really persevere in prayer, to be focused on prayer and to pray for others. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This is where the author of Hebrew reminds us of the priority and the responsibility of Christians to pray. And that God will always provide his mercy and grace when we pour our heart, our heart out to him. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 reads, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our Confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, purpose statement, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him, to find help in time of needs. You see, as we draw near to God, in our time of prayer, the Lord preserves us and keeps us. 
And we have that ability to come to Him in boldness. And He will never reject His children. That's why God's people fall on their knees, pray and trust, and then can say, let your will be done. And then they can get up. Now, I know someone here is saying, but Steve, I just don't have the time. Let's look at a few of our excuses for not praying. First one, I know I will not get what I'm praying for. It's not worth it. It's the, that's the idea of buyer's remorse. I've been there, I've tried it, it doesn't work. God's sovereignty will happen, whatever will happen will happen. It will all work out in the end. Sometimes we pray for someone and deep down inside we have that thought that God can never save that person. That's just totally wrong. When we pray, our prayer should be that we're praying for opportunities to be able to give the gospel to them. Sometimes some people delegate that responsibility of prayer. Instead of, instead of saying, Lord, you are God alone and you have brought this trial, they spend all their time sending text messages, putting it on social media. This is what's happening. Would you please pray for me? But they themselves do not take the time to pray. There is an interesting Pew Research statistic that really has to make every single parent here stop and think, what am I doing? How am I teaching prayer to my children? The statistic says that 46% of teenagers are constantly on social media. 46%. This is where we as parents have to really protect our children from distractions. This is where we as, we as parents have to take the time and pray with our children. You see, all of these are excuses, but these excuses will never work in front of all-powerful, omnipotent, and omniscient God. So why don't, why don't Christians pray? Mostly because of their pride. Or sometimes they pray, but it's a pitiful prayer. And there are perils of praying bad prayers. This is the three-second prayer, as I mentioned. The Lord, please. Lord, be with me. Lord, help me. These prayers do not offer the proper reverence. Or the sleep prayer, praying in your bed while half asleep. Or how about the powerless, the checklist prayer? You're just praying, and you're praying. You're praying through your prayer list, but it's more of, just legalistic manner. Or how about, and I love this one, the morning drive to work prayer. I don't think in this traffic that we live today, that, that 101 or the 405, I think the only thing you can be praying is for not to get into an accident. <laughs> Gone out are times where you have a calm understanding of where you're going and you have that time to really pray. These are all meaningless prayers. There's misuses of prayer. But in contrast, the Bible teaches us biblical prayer. And if you're marking down, this is the first of the five points of biblical prayer. Biblical prayer is an outpouring of heart, outpouring of soul by God's children. So it's an outpouring of the heart, outpouring of the soul, 
of us, his children, those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. We see this in so many of the Psalms. We see it in Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him because God is a refuge for our soul. Here we see the believer is pouring out their heart and they can take respite and refuge knowing that God is in control. We also see this in 1 Samuel chapter 1, 15. This is the well-known story when Hannah was praying her heart out and Eli thought that she was a drunk. This is a story where there's, ra- there's hurtful accusations, but Hannah defends herself and says, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. You see, biblical prayer is honest. We're praying to a personal God, and we're pouring out our heart to Him. The second point to biblical prayer, there's purpose in praying because we receive comfort. We receive comfort from our God. That's why we say biblical prayer offers comfort to believers. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, 6 to 7. This is where this prayer offers something different that we don't get in our society today. Verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Have you ever stopped and said, I'm worrying, and instead of worrying, let me take some time and just pray. That is what Peter calls us here. So we saw biblical prayers, an outpouring of heart, an outpouring of the soul. It is there to offer comfort for believers. It is also an opportunity to bring our will in line with God's will and plan. You see, there's types of prayers that God willingly answers because this is what he does. Pastor John writes, Prayer is not asking God to do my will. It is bringing myself into conformity with his will. It is asking him to do his will and to give us the grace to enjoy it. There's nothing better when you pray and you pray to the Lord and then you know that the answer is no. But you've prayed, and you can just let her go and say, this is his will. Never never try to attempt something without the, the provision, the protection, the covering of prayer. Have God's shade over everything you do. And let's look at a few prayers that the Lord mightily answers. Lord, grant us your mercy to grow in the knowledge of your Son, to gain spiritual wisdom, to understand this passage, to bear good fruit according to your word, to be filled with your strength so that we may have endurance to battle this trial, to stay full of Christ's joy in this trial. You see, these prayers give glory to God during the trial. And this leads us to our fourth point. Because biblical prayer softens the heart of the unbeliever. It's always better to take a few minutes 
and to pray to the Lord to prepare the soil, to prepare the heart before giving the gospel. This is the case for every single time you have a family get-together or you know you're going to be able to, you have to call someone to repentance. You see, God will save sinners and we get to participate in this through prayer. The prayer would be to repent. We ask them to repent and to put their full trust in the finished work of the cross. We see this in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Here Paul is explaining to the church of Colossae to devote themselves to prayer. And prayer is commanded here. Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it, in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, so that God will open up a door for the word. Paul is exhorting every believer to devote themselves to the priority of prayer. And one final point of biblical prayer is that God answers prayers. So when we're praying, we're praying with an anticipation that the Lord will answer our prayers. We see this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything, and this is the prayer, according to his will, he hears us. And we have comfort in that. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests with which we have asked for him. These are encouraging statements to believers who are going through difficult times. What are some of the best practices? Having seen, having seen the, the importance, what, what are some of the best application, best practices? How long should someone pray? Pray until you really start praying. If you need to get a timer, get a timer. Make sure you have the calm solitude. Make sure it's planned prayer. Where to pray? You can pray anywhere. But it's also good to have a place where the door is locked and it's just you and the Lord. Pray before there's a need. Don't wait for calamity. We all know it's going to come. Pray before there's a need. Pray before any single important decision. Pray before... Pray before something happens so that you're in the habit of it. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 says that Jesus prayed in solitude. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away in a secluded place and was praying there. Prayer lists are always helpful. You can have a prayer list in a journal where you write out prayers for everyone. And you can group it in the church, in the family, in your work, in your school. This way, you can keep track for whom you're praying. And on the bottom, you can add a grateful list. This is, would be for answered prayers. There were, therefore, you can go back and look at the record of God's faithfulness in your life. Pray back scripture. You can open up a psalm. You can open up Psalm chapter 6. And where the psalmist pours out his heart and then finds, and then there's a shift at verse 8 where there is a resolution that he will trust in God alone. There's nothing higher of worship when you're praying, when you are praying back Scripture. So when you pray, make it a habit to have your Bible open and not closed. And if you want to jumpstart your prayer life, I always recommend copy out Scripture. 
pick the book, 1 John, copy it out. And then once you're done, write out your prayers. This slows you down. You put away your phone. You put things away. And it's just you and the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees comes face to face with God. So then prayer is offered only by Christians. It's sweet communion with God. It is sincere. It's real. And we pray according to God's will because we're seeking in our prayers only to glorify the Lord. Only when Christians accept the daily battle of making prayer priority that they become prayer warriors and they can actually fight the daily battle to set time aside for prayer. So make sure your prayers are planned. They're deliberate. They're intentional. Calculate the right time. Make it purposeful. And have fail-safes so that when you cannot pray, you can quickly come back and you can pray. Now, this was all my framework. Because don't forget, we, we read Hezekiah's prayer. This was just the backdrop. Because Hezekiah's prayer follows these principles and we're going to look at them in the effort to solidify this in your lives today. You see, this story is one of our family's favorite stories. I've been wanting to preach this sermon for 15 years. And it's really been an encouragement to us. How important is this whole narrative story? Well, it's so important that it's recorded in three different places. It's recorded in Isaiah, it's recorded in 2 Kings, and then there's a summary statement in 2 Chronicles. And as I I said before, context is always king. Our story starts, so please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 36. This is where our our story starts. There's great danger And we're going to see God's faithfulness. We're going to see mighty deliverance of his children. And there's going to be mortal punishment to those who blaspheme the name of God. We will see the Assyrian king Sennacherib try to undermine the trust that that Hezekiah's people have put in in Yahweh. But through this story, we, we are reminded that God's opponents will always tell you your God is too weak. That you're too weak and you're a fool to trust him. There are five key persons in this story. There's King Hezekiah. He is not a perfect king. He is not, he's not the prophet Isaiah. He's done some good. He's torn down some altars. But don't forget, he is not a prophet of God. We have that perfect example in Isaiah. In fact, we can even see that King Hezekiah fails the first test. And that should be an encouragement to those who might have failed in the past to pick yourselves up and then to get back to it. Secondly, we see King Hezekiah's three officials. These, we're going to call them the Judean Officials. Why? Because they have three really complicated names, and all of you are gonna 
All of, I'm going to lose all of you through this. Thirdly, we have the Syrian king Sennacherib, mortal enemy of the Jewish nation. He claims to be the ruler of the world and he has the army to back it up. But his downfall is he's going up against Yahweh. And he might have been able to succeed against the other false G-gods, but when it comes to the one true living God, he has a very rude and deadly awakening. King Sennacherib sends the fourth, the fourth person. This would be his messenger. This is called Rabshakeh. He's an Assyrian general. We will call him for today's purposes the messenger. He is gifted with a silver tongue. He can speak in Judean and he has a really loud voice because he can scream from one place all the way up into the, into the fortress. And then we see the man of God. We see Isaiah the prophet. This is the unshakable prophet of God. And this is our example of how someone perseveres in his prayer life after having established the priority of prayer. Look with me, Isaiah chapter 36, verse 1. And now we're going to go a little faster. Verse 1. Now in the 14th 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah. And what does he do? He seizes them. King Sennacherib is very brutal. He's very efficient at conquering. Whatever he sets his eye on, he gets it. He conquers it even the fortified cities of Judah. He has been victorious. He's unstoppable. He is prideful. He's arrogant. He thinks no one can protect Jerusalem because Jerusalem in his mind is just no different than any other city. He considers himself to be so powerful that there is no need to fear anyone or any god. I promise you, before the end of the story, something will happen. And he will, he will understand, and I hope this will also be an opportunity for everyone here to understand, what are the consequences of standing in front of a living God and blaspheming his name? Verse 2, And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a very large army. He's almost finished conquering Lachish and Libna, and he sends his mouthpiece, the messenger, to sort of broker a deal. Maybe his messenger can convince King Hezekiah to just give up. Maybe the fear is so great that he's just going to give up, open the gates, and they're just going to be able to walk in without even, even the loss of one arrow or one soldier. You see, this is a show of strength. This is to put pressure on the city and on their inhabitants. And don't forget, there's children. There's there's women. It's not just soldiers. This messenger has a single message to squeeze surrender, to force Hezekiah to give up the city, and if not, to have the people of the king to basically throw over Hezekiah over the wall. Everything, everything he says is about threatening and everything is calculated. In war, strategy is the main key component. Look back to verse chapter 2. And he, Rabshakeh, stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. 
Why do you think he's there? He is threatening to cut off the supply of water. Hey, if you do not listen to me, look what I'm capable of doing. And next comes the three Judean officials. These are not war heroes. These are just learned men. And the, and, the, and, the, and the bargain or the request is simple. Give up, surrender, come up, come out. You've already have lost. Do we not see this in our society today? Why are you still doing this, oh Christian? Do you not see how technology has advanced? Do you not see where we are? Why are you still reading that same old book? As Christians, we have to be ready to give a defense when we are called to give a defense, and when we are called to surrender, we say no. And Rabshakeh, the messenger, asks one question in verse chapter 4. What is the confidence that you have? What is the confidence that you have, Christian, when something impossible happens to you? And verse 7 follows up with a blasphemous question. You tell me, you trust in the Lord, your God? So the question is, what will you answer when someone asks this question of you? What helps you get yourself through the day? He is saying, do you not see my army? Do you not see and recognize what you have to lose? Do you not see the, in terms of the theological implication behind this question? Someone is mockingly asking him, do you still trust God? I invite you to imagine what you will answer when someone of authority asks that, asks that question to you. And this is where as Christian and as a church, we have to take the time and moment to really have the answer pre-thought out and pre-prepared so that when that time comes, you have your answer. Christians must be determined we must be resolved. We must be ready to answer that question correctly because we are often called to give a defense of our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. We have hope. In this entire, in this entire pressure cooker that Hezekiah and his people are in, they still must hold on to God's hope and in his promises. In verse 8, he says, come now, let us make a deal. This would be a seductive language of the world. And he says, I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to set riders upon them. This is a backhanded compliment. I am so powerful, I can give you 2,000 horses but you don't even have any riders. Come now, let us reason. Give up. And he gives one last messenger, one last um, argument, this messenger in verse 10. And this is the utter definition of blasphemy, of misusing God's name. Have I now come up with that, without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? Look, the Lord has said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He has the audacity to claim that God has sent him 
under his authority to destroy the city. The only, the only comment here is give up or all of you will be dead, if not worse. King Hezekiah's officials understand the situation. They try to do a little bit of damage control. They try to change the language because the messenger was talking in Judean. They say, come, talk to us in Aramaic. The messenger smells the fear. He sees blood in the water, doubles down. And look what he says in verse 11. In verse 13. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried out with a loud voice. That's why I said he has a very loud voice in Judean. And said, hear the words of the great king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or he will not be able to deliver you. Don't let Hezekiah, verse 15, make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of Assyria. This is his message. This is his argument. Do not be deceived. You're already doomed. Every single soldier, every single mother, every single child. If you, ha- if you follow Hezekiah, you are doomed. And if you believe your Lord is going to save you, you are also doomed. You are a fool. This is where God has permitted his people to be tested. This is where oftentimes we are when we need to be tested so that we may grow in our faith. Verse 16, there's a slight shift. The messenger starts bribing the people. You can go back to your own home. home. You can live your best life now. All you need to do is just throw Hezekiah over. He even goes as far to say, it's not your fault for believing Yahweh. But don't make this fatal mistake. This is where Christians need to be careful not to fall into the temptation of fear. This is where we see in verse 18 and 19 that they reference, he references four other cities who have been fallen under the hand of the Assyrian. And that in their minds, nothing can stop them. And he taunts God by saying, who among the other gods, verse 20, of these lands have delivered their land from my hand. The Lord will not deliver you from my hand again. That is what he's saying. And I hope that you feel the sense of doom that is being portrayed here. I hope you really see the power and the seriousness. But we will soon see the king King Sennacherib of Assyria come up to the real God and say, I cannot defeat him. And he humbles himself and he leaves. Because the true protector of the city of Jerusalem is Yahweh and he will always protect his children. The three messengers, desperate, tear their clothes and go and give King Hezekiah, the update. King Hezekiah, and this is where King Hezekiah falls, because this is a hinge moment. And look at verse 22. They come to the King Hezekiah with their clothes torn and tell him the words of Rabshakeh. Instead of taking up the mantle of leadership, instead of rising to the occasion, 
Instead of falling on his knees in prayer, King Hezekiah rips his clothes as well and says, all is doom. He does only one thing right. He seeks Isaiah's help. This is not a prayer of contrition. He does not ask for any help from God. Look what he says. He says in verse 4, now we've reached chapter 37, perhaps the Lord your God, not my God, will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Isaiah gives a prophecy and says, God, I am God and I am reigning. And I am sorry because I know I'm passing a lot. I didn't think the first part was going to take that long. This is something you need to take it to take the time and read through it. I'm skipping through so many things because time is almost at the end. In verse 7, he says, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, that he will hear a rumor and return to my own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God will sovereignly set something in his heart so that he must return back, and he will, be, he will fall by the sword. What is the clear implication? Jerusalem will, be, will not be defeated, defeated. Stop worrying. Christians need to learn the lessons from the Old Testament narratives and not be so easily swayed. When the enemies of God blaspheme the name of God, God will protect his name, his honor, and his little ones. This is the hope we hold on to. This is the hope we had, and it has to be unshakable. And through all this story, there's a short little respite. Having not been able to convince Hezekiah, the messenger returns back to Assyria to tell his king. The king does not relent and sends this time messengers with a written out request. King Hezekiah takes that request. And now we come to Hezekiah's prayer in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 14. Once again, Hezekiah is faced with an insurmountable enemy. But his reaction is totally different than the first one. Verse 14. Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying. This is where secluded prayer, as I mentioned before, is so important. O Lord of hosts, literally Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. When we pray, let it be the first element of our prayer to ascribe glory and honor to God. Biblical prayer recognizes God's position. Here he says, Lord of hosts. This is the military commander of all the hosts of angels in heaven. God of Israel, personal who is enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. We believe in a monotheistic God. We believe in God and there's only one God. You have made the heavens and the earth. God is creator and we are his creations. Do you see how Hezekiah is exalting in reverence? Do you see how when we pray, we should also be praying out God's attributes, his holiness, his eternal, his, the fact that he's eternal, 
How we magnify him that he is unchanging and that his promises will never change. We exalt him for his power and his truth. After having looked up, Hezekiah looks down in recognition of his own position. In verse 17, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and the land and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. We live a life in utter and complete dependency daily upon the Lord for his sustenance. And King Hezekiah recognizes that the army in front of him is just too powerful. And only having recognized God's position, only having recognized his position on his knees, then he, he, or he makes his own request. So in one sense, it's looking up and then looking down, getting down on your knees, praying. And while, while you're there, take the time to be grateful to the Lord. Only then does he make his personal request. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from, from his hand that all the kingdom of the earth may know that you alone are Lord, our God. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, despite how difficult things are for you right now, despite how impossible your life may seem, despite what you're going through, Never give up. Because the manner in which God answers this prayer, and we will see in verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. This is why we make prayer a priority in our lives. As a Christian, as a family, as a church. Because this is the God to whom we pray. This is the power of God. Jeremiah 33 says, God's power has no limit. And this is only one angel who destroyed with the sword 185 hardened soldiers. And what was the ending of the one who blasphemed God? Verse 37, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. But Sennacherib's punishment was not done because it was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. 38, and when it came as he was worshiping the house of Nisroch, his God, his sons killed him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshadon, his son, became king. Look at how he was murdered and disgraced by his sons. Sennacherib is humiliated. His army is decimated. He his finally came across the one true living God, and he lost. My dear Cornerstone family, prayer is governed under God's sovereignty, and God's purposes determine the answer of prayer. God does not always answer the prayer so mightily. This is according to a sovereign will. But we have seen that God's power is limitless. We have seen a real power of miracle. And God shows us that he's able to do. And let us be encouraged 
when we pray, to humble ourselves, to remind ourselves, God cannot answer your prayers in this manner if you are not praying. So please take the time to pray. We looked today and we looked at very quickly how prayer is commanded and prayer is a tremendous privilege. And we are called to make prayer part of our lives. That there are, there, there are perils of not praying. That biblical prayer is an outpouring of heart and soul. It offers comfort to the believer. It is an opportunity to bring our prayers under the protection of God's will. It softens the heart of the unbeliever. And God answers prayers. He is all-powerful. And all we need to do, and I will finish with this verse. And this is my favorite verse on prayer. Because no matter where you are in your lives, we need to be praying. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Paul says to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Whatever you're going through right now, if, and at this current moment, we know there are real military wars that are going on, and there are real attacks being, horrendous attacks being committed. We are praying. God answers our prayers in three ways. He answers yes, he answers no, and he says, I have something better for you. But what we need to do is to pray and to wait for something better. I hope I have encouraged you to make prayer a habit. God answers prayers, but we have to be praying so that he may answer them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement of your word. Our prayer today is that we stand together in prayer for us to set prayer and to pray for others a priority, to lift each other up in prayer so that we are strengthened through the many answers of prayer. Help us to be faithful in prayer, to hear, to hear our hearts being poured out for one another. We commit those who are suffering right now who are in pain to your care. And your word is also a warning for those who are still in darkness, to those who are still opposing your son, for those who are still struggling to put their trust in you. We pray that you may bring them to yourself right now. Draw them to your son's name. May your spirit awaken their eyes. Help them to set aside the anger. Grant them to see the grace that is being offered. Help us to point them to the cross of Jesus so that you alone may change their lives. We commit all this to you, Lord, and we pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the Son's name we pray. Amen.